Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is all I know. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of All I Know. I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. Her name is Lori, and she is here to tell us a story. Lori, welcome. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me today. Bet. I'm so glad that you're here. So let's start with our anchor questions, as everybody's wanting to know, who are you? And what is it that we need to know about who you are to make the most of whatever we'll end up talking about today? That's such a big question. And I, I guess I'll go in chronological order somewhat. Uh, I am a daughter, a sister, a friend, a wife, a mom. Uh, and I have become somewhat of an adoption activist, not pro-adoption, not anti-adoption, but pro-education, pro-ethics in adoption and pro-understanding of different perspectives in adoption. It is a complicated topic, and most people who come to adoption don't have any idea how layered it is until they're in deep. <laughs> yes, I might be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably part of what propelled you forward. Yes, yes. Yeah. On the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where would you plot your life? I would say Yes. <laughs> one of, yes to both. Yes to it all. One of the things that I've come to in both my lived experience and study of adoption is both and. This also comes from my yoga practice, bringing together things that seem polar or opposite or different and becoming expansive enough to cover both ends. So of that particular spectrum, I do think that in many ways I've lived a very ordinary life. You know, there have been things that have happened and I, I don't make the news. <laughs> and I also think extraordinary is such a strange word because extraordinary just kind of means like even more ordinary than ordinary. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. It is a funny word, isn't it? But what I've noticed is that when I do pay attention to any moment, it makes an ordinary moment extraordinary. On my blog many years ago, when there was a pretty active blogging community, I hosted something, kind of a bloggy event every month called Perfect Moment Mondays. And it was really just encouraging people to make something extraordinary that was ordinary. And the way you do that is just by noticing it and paying attention. So I would spend the month on the lookout for that one moment that was just perfect because it was noticed, not because it was perfect. Yeah. And then you would share it on your blog and there would be yeah. a conversation about that. Yeah. And other people were doing it too. 
so that we don't lose track of it, it probably would be a good idea for you to share how people could find your blog if they want. Do you still do these Mondays? I don't do the perfect moment Mondays anymore because I noticed it was becoming like a chore, (laughs) which is the antithesis of what I wanted it to be. So a couple of years ago, I retired it. I still practice on my own, but I don't put myself on a deadline to put it up. And the name of my blog is lavenderlose.com. And can you spell that just in case? Yeah. Lavender is L-A-V-E-N-D-E-R and lose is L-U-Z. Lavender is because it's one of my favorite colors and lose is because it means light. And I am a light seeker. I like, I love your lantern image for this podcast. It really resonates for me because of that. Oh, thank you. It was uh, quite the process to land there so that you appreciate it and like it feels really good to me. (laughs) Feels really good. What's the topic of your blog? What are people going to find when they go there? It has evolved with me and over, I've been doing it for almost 15 years, which is, I don't know, probably 200 years in blog years, (laughs) but it's somewhat of a diary. I used to talk a lot about perfect moments that happened here in the home with my kids as they were growing up. They're now young adults and, you know, they hit an age where they don't want to be talked about at all. And I was always trying to be mindful of not sharing parts of their story that they wouldn't have opted in. But I think probably the bones of it are an exploration of adoption complexity. Okay. So that's what people find if they go to lavenderloose.com. Yeah. Yeah. What is your definition of success? I think for me, success is being able to find contentment. So it's more liking what you have instead of wanting something more. So it's a little bit of the the mindfulness and the finding the perfect moments by paying attention to the ordinary. So maybe just setting realistic goals for myself and meeting them. That's what makes me feel successful. But you said something about attainable goals. I think that was the word that you used, setting attainable goals and meeting them. It's like, I think sometimes we forget to do that, <laughs> to, to make what what we want in reach. One of the things I've been able to hack my brain about is how to get things done, which is like if I want to write a book or I want to create something, it's huge, but I know how to break it down into small goals for my today to-do list. And if I just work my to-do list an hour a day on that project, eventually I get it all done, but I have to break it down into attainable chunks. Yeah. Okay, so now we're to our big anchor question. What are three events, themes, circumstances, experiences, you can choose any combination of those that you feel have most shaped who you are, Lori? I think the first one would have been um, being sickly as a child. The second would be, would be experiencing infertility as a young slash middle adult. And the third one would be... <laughs> my baptism by fire into adoption world, the online adoption world. And that as kind of the genesis of the direction that my life has taken over the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, I want to deep dive into every single one of those. (laughs) You just really threw out some topics that I want to unpack. Which, which direction are we going today? 
they almost build on each other. And I might be able to do the first two rather quickly and then really focus on the last one. Okay. It's like three for one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, let's dive in then chronologically. So you talked about being sickly as a child. What happened to you? I was the oldest of three daughters and I just was sick as a kid. I was allergic to everything. And I've done a lot of, you know, thinking and therapy around how did that happen? Why did that happen? My lungs tend to be my Achilles heel, my soft spot where I feel things. And energetically, the lungs are a place of sorrow and sadness and grief. But this started when I was, you know, probably an infant. (laughs) So I don't know what I had to be sorrowful and and grief stricken about at that point. You know, I had a a loving parents who have always just adored me. They're still around for me. I am not aware of anything and they're not aware of anything that could have hurt me in those days. So I don't know where that came from. And that's all beside the point anyway, because it just is. But I was allergic to orange juice. I was allergic. Even now I'm allergic to peanuts and tree nuts, like the anaphylactic kind of shock that I have to stay away from those things. I was allergic to dairy. I was allergic to eggs. They gave me, I got the allergy tests when I was five, you know, the stabbing my arm all the way up and down. And I tested allergic to everything. And when I eat, I don't know how my mom kept me fed. Uh, (laughs) The family lore is that the way we found out I was allergic to nuts is that my mom was making my dad chocolate chip cookies in one end of the house when I was really little uh, and they had chopped peanuts in them. And I was in my bedroom napping as a baby or a little kid in the other end of the house with the door closed. And I just kind of blew up like a balloon just from her cooking them. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a serious allergy, Lori. And this was, these were back in the days when there were no allergy notes on food and no, but nobody else had this at the time. And, and now it's very common. But there was obviously something amiss with my immune system. It was very hyperactive. It was reacting to things that it didn't need to. And today it still does, but it's calmed down a lot. I can eat eggs. I've been able to eat eggs for all of my adult life. I can do orange juice. I don't like it, but nuts I still stay away from. But just And if I look at pictures of me when I was younger, when I was in grade school, I just have this greenish tint to me. Like I'm not quite getting enough oxygen. I also had asthma. I was teased about having asthma. Kids on the playground would call me asthma. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's horrible. So I, I think what I got from all of that is that sickness is the default setting And I would go to doctors and they would give me allergy shots. They would give me Benadryl. They would give me medicine, inhalers, other medicines, and and that I needed medicine to, to live. And my body was broken. And that was, I was not sad about that. It's just how it was. Mm -hmm. And that also energetically, I think it kind of made me into a little bit, I had a victim mentality, like things were done to me. I didn't have a lot of agency around my body because it was fail. It didn't work the way I wanted it to. Yeah. I mean, it's like almost everything you're exposed to, you have an allergic reaction to. And yeah. some of those things could actually kill you. Right. And imagine moving through the world, not feeling safe in it. I mean, just knowing that when I went off to college, I had to take an EpiPen with me because uh, I wasn't sure that I could get to an emergency room in time if I did 
encounter something I was alerted to specifically nuts. I've done some energetic work that seems to have brought me back into power with my body. So when you say energetic work, let's just like step down that branch for a second, because I imagine we have some folks listening who feel like that sounds kind of (laughs) woo-woo and they may not really know what it means. So can you share that with us a little bit so that those of us who are confused about what does that mean, energy work? A few years into my late 20s and 30s, I started doing some energy work with a woman named Ethel. And it was at that time when I realized that I had been carrying some victim patterns. And I began to realize that there was a payoff that I had for being sickly in the first part of my life. And this is what it looked like. I got special treatment. For example, I never had to run the 600-yard dash in gym class in elementary Because your lungs couldn't do it. Because my lungs couldn't do it. My mom called and got me excused. And I had special treatment. Like my friends and boyfriends would have to give me special treatment because I might die if I kissed a boy who had Snickers on his breath or something. (laughs) And even now, if I go back to my college friends, they'll be like, oh, yeah, weren't you deathly allergic to peanut butter? Yes, I was. Um, so I was special. I, was, I got special treatment I, and I was special in that way. And also, I kind of got out of things that I didn't want to do. Like, I never had to vacuum. My sisters vacuumed but because I was allergic to dust. So I got out of things. So I realized I was using my fragility as currency. And as long as that was happening, I was hanging on to the energetic patterns. There was no reason for me to really want to heal from this, to promote my immune system, to attuning it better and only responding to what it needed to and not to these other things that it didn't really need to. So once I had that realization, I was more free to choose another way of um, seeing health. So as I'm listening to you talk about this energy work, my clinical brain kicks on. I'm thinking, oh, you're talking about secondary gain. I didn't know there was a word for it. (laughs) No, that's all right. I think if we smoosh together a little bit of what I know clinically and a little bit of what you know about energy work, we might actually be able to translate this in a way that makes sense to the person who's listening. So it's that idea that there might be a maladaptive pattern or there might be a difficult situation that looks like on its face, you would want to change it. Of course, you don't want that. Of course, you don't want to be the sick kid. But your experience of it is I'm special and I'm actually getting some good things from this. My life is a little bit easier because I'm the sick kid. So at first blush, of course, Lori wants to get better, but the secondary gain, the hidden gain, what was the phrase that you used? I was using my fragility as currency. Yes, for that, such a brilliant way to describe it. And I want you to flesh that out a little bit more so that the person we're conversing with on the other end of the earbuds can actually think that through for themselves too. But it's that idea that, Something that looks like you may not want it actually stays in place because it's serving you somehow. So talk about fragility being currency. I think what you said, it was a maladaptive way of getting my needs met. I had felt so out of control with my health and in my body 
And I realized that this was a way I had some control over people, over how things went. And when my control came from being out of control, that kind of reinforced being out of control. It was interesting because when I was little, I was allergic to eggs and nuts. And eggs healed for some reason and nuts got worse. So I I just kept pondering, why could I heal from something and not from the other? And it wasn't until I started figuring out what was worth hanging on to about allergies, about being sick, about being special, about having that wrapped up in my identity. It wasn't until I started looking at the gains that I had from it, the secondary gains, I could see it in a more complete way and then let go of the gain. I stopped using it as currency. And once I did that, there was like a loosening. I have a couple of questions. Were you conscious of this all along or was there something that prompted you to connect that dot? I was not conscious of it until it all came to a head after going to Japan for a year, after my life imploded on several fronts, coming back with pneumonia and having follow-up x-rays show that I had a big problem and the problem could be solved either with a lobectomy, which has long Wait, lasting. Lobectomy is like taking away part of your lungs. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I was processing that accurately. So surgery to remove part of the apparatus and organ of your body that helps you breathe. And the capacity to fully breathe. Does not sound like an attractive solution to me. Not an attractive solution. Second one would be to be on steroids for the rest of my life. Which is not healthy. And it was before, it was during my childbearing years. And the effects of the drug were probably not conducive to childbearing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. conceiving a child. What was the third option? The third option was an experimental drug that had not yet been approved in the U.S., but there was a way that I could try to take it. But I was in my late 20s, and it just seemed too big a risk for my life. So that whole experience of coming home from Japan and being confronted with this mold, basically, that was in your lungs and your treatment options being horrid is what made you stop and look at this pattern of sickness And that was when you were like, oh my gosh, I kind of use this as a way to get my needs met. It happened with one more step. And that was that I got off of the merry-go-round with doctors and I met somebody through a new job who was into energy work and she lives energy. Her name is Ethel and she's become, you know, a 30-year friend of mine who is just very, very grounded and meditative and a person of agency. And she helped me see other ways. She kind of added in Eastern and Western medicine for me. And it was her support. It was her eyes. It was her encouragement that helped you make that connection. Ah, there's a secondary gain. Exactly. Yeah. And what am I going to do about that? Exactly. Uh, why, why are you hanging on to this? How is this working for you? So it became conscious for you. And then after it was conscious, you started being able to make different choices around it. 
I think that's the key, Jen, is that it had been so subconscious. And with the help of Ethel, I was able to take a look at my patterns and what I had been doing, what I'd been gaining, what I'd been losing, and then make more of a conscious choice on the trade-off. So once you figure out that you're getting some needs met, how do you shift that? How do you shed that? I had to learn how to be more straightforward. I had to learn how to know what it was that I wanted. What was I after? What was the gain I was seeking? And going against my impulses of the secondary ways of doing it and trying to find a primary way of doing it, like asking for it. (laughs) Hey, I really don't want a vacuum. (laughs) How about I do the other thing and you vacuum? (laughs) I'll trade you. Or uh, maybe I can't, maybe I can't run the 600 yard dash, but maybe I can try the 300 yard dash. You know, I wasn't in the time of running races at school anymore, but testing my body more and finding out what can I do. I've always thought there's things I can't do, but maybe I can do more than I think. And it's time to, you know, every once in a while you check and see where your limits really are. And could you do more than you thought? Yeah, a lot. I was not as limited in my body as I was by my mind. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the truth? So much stuff is a head game. So much. So you just mentioned briefly Japan, and can you walk us through that a little bit? So in my mid-20s, I had a fall apart on lots of fronts, and so I answered an ad, like a newspaper ad that tells you how long ago it was. And so I was teaching English for a year, and at the very end, I got pneumonia. I came home, and as a uh, follow-up I just found out that there were some ongoing issues with my lungs beyond pneumonia. There were some impacted parts of my lung and it was going to require lots of further attention. And then I had to find a job when I was home. So looking for work and eventually ending up at this place where Ethel was leaving the job that I was coming in to take, but she became a friend of mine and a mentor of mine kind of a pivotal point in my life was meeting her at this job. How beautiful in a way that she was literally passing the baton to you. Yes. And that she's taught you so much and played such a significant part in your healing. Absolutely. I mean, she, she was leaving and I remember asking her at the interview, so what are you going to do? She goes, I don't know. I'm like, well, are you going to get another job or are you going to travel? She goes, I don't know. She was just so in the moment and being guided by something that I couldn't understand at that point. And she has lived her whole life like that, just being guided, being open to the guidance. That's always been very inspiring to me, although I've never achieved anything like that. I do not have that kind of courage, but I admire it. Yes. Big time. Yeah. She is like a a modern day mystic. She lives her mystical practice and she taught me new ways of looking at an old thing which I always love and that is that I have more agency than I was claiming so just doing some work around that to move in back into my body what I, I I just started living in my body claiming my body um, moving my body and shifting my mindset from, I'm sick and there's nothing I can do about it too. I can move energy in my body. I can clear some things away with intention and attention. Nothing happened overnight. This has been a 20, 30 year long practice. 
but I feel like I live in my body and I own it now and I'm a lot healthier. I will have moments of mindfulness where I just really try to figure out what my mind is doing. It's not becoming blank in your head like I originally thought. It's becoming your own observer and watching what your thoughts are and not getting attached to them. The typical example is watching the clouds go by. The thoughts are the clouds. Um, And one of my favorite sayings is, I am not the clouds, I am the sky. Mm, How pretty. I really like that. That's kind of a shift to make in reclaiming my body, my life, my spirit. One of the first times I ever learned about metacognition, which I think is part of what you're talking about, that ability to think about or observe your own thinking. I remember someone taking me through a guided visualization where I was planting thoughts or letting thoughts rest in a leaf like it was a little cup and sending it down a river. (laughs) And that was one of the first times I think I started to actually connect the dots that I could think about my thinking instead of just thinking it. I love that. And what I notice about that method and the method I talked about is we're both using nature, water, and air to clear things. And I have found in recent years that being out in nature just really is healing and grounding for me, that that grounding energy that I need to stay present in myself. Well, and the other thing that you said that I think is really powerful and I want to touch on it because probably of other conversations I've had in recent weeks, but that idea that mindfulness or a meditative practice doesn't have anything to do with becoming blank or emptying yourself, which I think could be really frightening to a lot of people. The idea of opening yourself up and just being blank and impressionable could be kind of scary. But I don't think that's At least I have never had that experience. It's that that vulnerability. And it's also, you know, I am a type A. I have my to-do list. I am always thinking about the next thing I need to do. How do I stop that? How do I turn that off? And that's a practice. That's why you get better and better at it. The goal I set for myself isn't to meditate for an hour a day. It's to devote half an hour a day to observing my thoughts. That I can do. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what you expect of yourself or ask of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, just touching on that idea that it's not about becoming blank. It's about observing what's floating up. Yeah. And letting it move as if through the clouds or down the river instead of having it stay stuck. It's like when you talk about that victimhood stance that you were feeling in your early adulthood when you got back from Japan, in theory, you know, that could be a thought like this is happening to me. I have no agency in this. That could be a thought that you let the clouds carry away. Exactly. Exactly. It was a limiting thought and it it was true as long as I held the thought, but it didn't end up being completely true when I re- started releasing that thought. So what's the new thought or what's the new narrative? I use something from, I don't know who came up with it, but I think it goes back to St. Francis of Assisi. It's the common thing that they use in recovery programs to change what you can, accept what you can't, and be able to discern the difference. The serenity prayer. The serenity prayer. Yeah. So in my health, in other any other struggles I have in my life, 
I try to discern between the two and I work the parts that I think I can influence. Sometimes I push the envelope on things I can influence by doing that work. And then I work really hard also to accept the things that just are. And that brings me peace. It brings me, I mean, not always. (laughs) Sometimes it's a struggle between those two things, the courage to change and the peace to accept. But it's a line I try to walk. That's probably the new paradigm that I've, I've replaced. And certainly there's more life in that thread of thinking than there is in this is happening to me and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, yeah. It was so empowering to to take back power from doctors. And I'm not saying that they didn't, that they took it from me. I gave it up. I was five. Right. (laughs) When you're five, how how much do you know about how much personal agency you should be exercising in the room? That's a lifelong journey. But I've reset the way I think about my health and my body to health is my natural state. I deviate from that sometimes and I have to take care of that. But I used to think that sickness was my natural state. And to get well, to feel good, that was the anomaly. Mm-hmm. Now I feel good. And if I don't feel good, that's the anomaly. And now I'm a I'm an older adult. I'm not super old, but I'm not super young. And I don't take many medications. I don't take any on a regular basis. You know, I'll take things when I need them. I had pneumonia earlier this year and I took the, the antibiotics. <laughs> I use Western medicine and I use energy work um, and introspection and claiming that I deserve to be healthy. I deserve to feel good. I can feel good if I make good choices for myself. I actually had a cancer scare early this year and I did all this work on it. And the work was to accept what I couldn't change. And I sat with this in this space for about a month in between CAT scans of my lungs and didn't try to heal it, tried to be with it. I knew when I had the second CAT scan that there would be a verdict by a doctor. And my goal in that month was to figure out how to accept whatever came. How'd you do it? I did a lot of introspection, a lot of meditation, a lot of releasing fear. And a lot of being present. I really worked hard to not go into, I may need surgery. I may need chemo. I may need radiation and project out. I really I might like, die. I might die. Um, I'm actually less afraid of dying than I am of medical procedures, <laughs> probably <laughs> because of you know, my early imprinting. And Ethel is still in my life. She worked with me a lot just bringing me back to my own inner sources. And so that was how you spent that month. It was a beautiful month. It was it was a hard month. And what Ethel told me when we got the verdict, which was it was not cancer. Lori, you got all the benefits of cancer without having to have cancer. And I am really proud of myself for how I spent that month. How you leaned in to how I lean, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I do not want anybody to take away that because I did this work, I got the outcome I wanted. There's not a cause and effect there. I feel like you should say more about that because as I'm sitting here listening to you, I was thinking maybe this is the empath in me. What is someone who is battling cancer right now 
thinking about what Lori is saying. And I want us to be able to reach that person and comfort that person and maybe even give them some ideas around what they could do to feel less victim to what is happening to their body that they didn't choose or make happen. So Ethel sent me a book called Dying to Be Me by Anita Morjani. And I read this during that month. It helped me disconnect from the outcome. I think once you can disconnect from the outcome, uh, you're golden. No matter what happens. Because you're disconnected from the outcome. But how do you do that? Especially with something as significant as a cancer diagnosis. And I'm sorry if I'm pushing too hard on this. I really want to draw this out because I think there's value here for all of us. Because even if it's not cancer, we all have a thing or things. I don't know that I did it well, but I do know that in that moment when I met with a doctor on video and he said, how are you feeling? I said, I feel great. I could not imagine that my body was going to betray me because it felt good. I was in my body. I know my body. And he said, well, your scan was clear. I don't think I, it was because I cleared cancer. I don't think that's what happened. I think I never had it. I think the pneumonia perhaps showed up on the scan in a way that looked scary. And I think perhaps I had invited in this experience for me to practice disconnecting from the outcome. And like Ethel said, I got to have the benefits of cancer without having cancer. Now, I don't think that translates to anybody else. That was my experience. But I will say that this book Help me see it from another perspective. This, the woman who wrote it got cancer, had a near-death experience, and the information she brought back from that was helpful to me in the disconnection. And living, you know, I think it's a clarification process that I went through, and maybe I needed to. I spent that month figuring out what do I want to say yes to for whatever number of days I have left, and what do I want to say no to? for whatever number of days I have left. It was a clarification. What's the difference, Lori, between disconnecting like you did in that month and dissociation? Mm. I think that's a really good question because we really don't want to disengage or leave our lives or disconnect from people. But I think disconnecting from the outcome, from really trying to guide almost trying to tell the universe or tell God, this is what needs to happen. (laughs) How many times do we pray that way? Yeah. I will raise my hand. (laughs) Part part of the work that I've done with Ethel, and I should really call it play because she has been encouraging me to play with the universe, not work with the universe, but play with the universe, is to come into my role as co-creator with God, not the victim of God, which is how I felt in the earlier part of my life. God did this to me. God put this in front of me. God thinks I'm strong enough for this. I'm a co-creator with this. There's me and God. Some of this has been resting parts back from God. That is like, whoa. (laughs) There's a claiming. 
I do think that the version of God that I grew up with, with this all-powerful, all-knowing God, and this actually is going to tie into my second point, which is infertility. I really struggled with God when I finally met the man in my dreams, wanted to make babies with him because he's so awesome, and I wanted little hymns running around, (laughs) and then we couldn't. And I'm like, how can an all-powerful and all-knowing God let this happen? This is so wrong. I was pissed. Well, and twice. Because yeah. you spent all of your growing up years feeling betrayed by your body. You've used that phrase a couple of times. And oh my goodness, wanting to have a child, wanting to create a life and not having our body work in concert with us to do that. Yeah. So many times when I speak with particularly women who are having struggles with infertility, the phrase they use is, they're betrayed by their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a hard thing to be that mad at God as an adult. I think as a child, it was easier because I was a child. I was, I, I was used to not having control. But as an adult, I was like, what do you mean? I can't study my way through this. I can't work my way through this. I can't research my way through this. <laughs> I, I can't solve this. it. I can't solve it. You cannot tell me this, God. I was so mad. For so long. Well, so keep going. (laughs) What happened in that thread of the story? That was the acceptance part of the story. I could not change it. I could go through the rest of our marriage and the rest of my life being mad or angry. Or I could accept that we're not going to make babies. and And then what? So... We looked at our options and decided adoption was the most likely path to be able to achieve parenthood. Once we chose that, the way was easy. Uh, The adoption road became easy for us. We adopted two children, um, and it didn't take a whole lot of time. There wasn't a whole lot of angst. It was a smoother road than the brief time we were on fertility treatments. How long did you guys wrestle with infertility, and how... You know, what kind of time frame are we talking about that anger and wrestling with God, wrestling with your body? You said, I was pissed. How long were you pissed? It was probably, it was five years between the dawning of infertility and um, becoming parents. There was a break in there where we we had um, moved to the Middle East. We lived in Syria for a couple of years and right after we had found out that we were not going to be able to have children. And so when we got back, we busied ourselves with making our first home together that was here in, in Colorado and furnishing and creating our lives and getting back to our jobs. And then it was like, okay, so now what? And we just decided, well, adoption is the way we're going to achieve what we want, hopefully. And it worked out. And then once you, know, once you do become a parent, you don't have time to be angry at God anymore. <laughs> It's true. Your hands are so full. And we were parents and that's really what we wanted. And we loved our children so much. And, you know, in hindsight, I can look back and say, I'm really glad for this path that the children that I have, I adore, I love, they are mine. And um, so that set a whole new path up for me, this adoption path. Okay. So let me just sort of recap and make sure I'm tracking all of this. 
shortly after you're born, you have a peanut allergy. We don't know if that's even the first one, but that's definitely a big one where you ballooned up during the chocolate chip cookie situation. And that really dominoed into basically being allergic to a zillion things and tons of doctor visits and not feeling well and basically having this, I don't know if message is the word I want to choose, basically having this belief that you are a sick person that needs intervention to be able to live. And then, you know, as you grow and as time passes, you find yourself in Japan, but you come home from Japan sick because there's a mold allergy and your lungs are reacting to it. But this time, instead of that same narrative playing out again, things change because you meet Ethel. And it breaks open your world and your thinking about what is happening in your body. And perhaps maybe what you might have the power to do with it, with what is happening in your body. And then you meet your partner, you fall in love, you want to build a family, and you two find that your body is not going to cooperate with making and delivering biological children. And now here we are, where you've become something of an adoption activist. And I I loved what you said at the beginning because you said, not pro-adoption, not anti-adoption. You're almost an activist for adoption education. Am I getting that right? Am I yeah, stringing exactly this together right. in, in a way that makes sense? Yeah, the way, the way I'm considering it now is that I am diving into adoption complexity and I am encouraging people to dive in with me because... People think they know about adoption from, I don't know, osmosis, People Magazine, Lifetime movies. And it's not like that at all on the ground. But we still have adoption practices as if it is like a Lifetime movie. What do you think people think they know about adoption? I think the narrative about adoption has been told from one of the three major perspectives, and that's the adoptive parents' perspective, mine. And parts of that are that when you get the baby, that's the end of the journey. But what I found for myself and what I think is probably true for most adoptive families is that that's also the beginning of another journey. I liken it to the wedding versus the marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, your journey isn't over after the, at, at the wedding. That's the start of it. <laughs> Yeah, we have a a mutual friend who uses the expression filling the crib. You think it's all going to be okay once you fill the crib. And I think that's a really powerful way to talk about adoption because so many people yearn so much for parenthood that when that piece happens, they expect a certain relief and a certain, uh, you know, fairy tale. And then they lived happily ever after. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you closing credits. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, perhaps for some families, it does play out that way. I have a bias that it doesn't, given what I do for a living. Uh, Of course, my bias is skewed by the fact that I see families who are in trouble. Nobody schedules time to come talk with me about how great their (laughs) adoption experience has been and how seamless. So I, I know that my lens is a little askew, but 
What do you think is the more needed narrative around adoption? I think because the adoptive parents are telling the story, another misconception I came in with is that adoptee is a, is a blank slate. You know, love conquers all. You can love through everything. And the reason I thought those is because adoptee voices were missing from my education. So I have spent a lot of time and I will continue to, to listen to adoptees. And, you know, perhaps their voices were harder to find before the Internet, but they're there now. And I encourage adoptive parents to find them on Instagram, find them on their podcasts, find their blogs, find their memoirs and listen to their stories. And if you get triggered by a certain aspect of a story, uh, that trigger means you probably have something going on in yourself that needs to be addressed and perhaps healed. I started my journey thinking I knew everything about open adoption 20 years ago because it happened so easily for us with our children's birth parents. And um, I went into a forum at the time. This is even before Facebook. And I was like, hey, I can help you do this because my daughter's birth mom and I figured this out. And I got spanked. This is the baptism I was talking about earlier. Because I thought the only view that existed was the adoptive parents' view. And in this forum, I ran into the birth parents' view. And I ran into the adoptees' view. And it was a painful, humiliating experience to go into this space and say, adoption is wonderful. It meets everybody's needs. It's a win-win-win. And then I figured out I didn't know squat. <laughs> what did you hear? What was the feedback that you got that was so jarring? Um, adoptees would say that I had no idea about the trauma of separation that adoptees felt from their birth mom um, and birth parents. Um, birth parents would tell me that I had no clue how painful it was to give up a child just because my daughter's mother was not expressing that yet, you know, one year into our adoption, I had no idea what was coming for her. And there is an era difference too, what between the baby scoop era, when things were done without expectant parents having much choice and voice in the matter and what was, what was happening later, but there's still some coercion today. And we have to be very careful about how much choice is actually happening in adoption placements. So it was just kind of a uh, an introduction to, I, I liken it to the experience of snorkeling or scuba diving. Have you have you done either of those? I'm afraid to scuba. I have family members who scuba, but I never liked the idea of having that much water on top of me. But I have snorkeled. <laughs> and I'm with you. I'm, I'm a snorkeler, less so a scuba diver. I tried it once and it was, I didn't like having that much water on top of me. But the sensation I remember from getting underwater and just having this huge scene appear before me that is so vast and colorful and I never knew it was there because it's under the surface, that's how it felt diving into this complexity of adoption. It was like, you mean this has always been here and I never knew? Mm-hmm. All this variation, all this texture, oh my gosh, I could study this. I I could be down here for, you know, years and never get it all. It's true. So I put my tail between my legs after that harsh exchange. Luckily, I don't know that it's preserved anywhere that anybody can find. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, it wasn't the kind of public humiliation people get these days. Um, but I did decide if I, oh, and one of the things that people did tell me, especially adoptees is you have no idea what your kids are going to go through, how they're going to feel. And I wanted to be the best mom possible. So I'm like, I better figure out how to figure out what my, my kids are going to feel. So I really did dive into adoptee narratives and it changed everything. How so? How did it change everything? What in your view shifted? Probably that one of the main shifts is that I stopped thinking that adoption was nothing. That once we filled our crib, that was the end of the story. For my kids, it was, of course, the beginning of the story. And again, I had to walk a line all the way through between denying that adoption was something to them and dwelling on adoption as being everything to them. I had to really tune into them and follow their lead, make it clear that they could talk about birth parents or adoptedness if they wanted to along the way, that I was there for them if they wanted to, but not like bringing it up all the time. And I'm, I'm sure I fell on either side at times, but I really did try to walk the line overall. That's a tricky tightrope. It's a tricky tightrope. I mean, I remember a chapter in Sherry Eldridge's book, 20 Things Adoptees Wish Their Parents Knew. But there's a chapter in there that basically says, hey, you know, I need you to remember all the time that this is part of my foundation. And also, I want you to forget it <laughs> because I just want everything to be typical. And that tension and walking that line as an adoptive parent is really tough. And it requires tuning in. Mm-hmm. And I think this ties in with what I was doing with my own body as I, I have developed a, pro- a practice of tuning in and noticing. And so I then tried to take that practice and put it on my kids too, so that I was just paying attention to the smaller things, not just what they said, but what else I could intuit from Mm -hmm. them. What did you learn? Is that anything that you can share or is that private and part of your children's story? So not shareable? Not shareable, probably. Okay. I actually think it's good that we, you know, have that part of the conversation and sort of acknowledge that there are boundaries I think a lot of what I run into in my work is that adoptive parents in particular sometimes have a hard time making the lines a little bit clearer instead of leaving them so blurry. Because while they may know a lot about their child's history and life before you came together, it doesn't mean that it's yours to share. So I'm actually glad you pushed back and said no. This is a good piece of advice that I got from adoptees, too, in those early days, is you don't get to tell their stories. Once it's out there, especially on the Internet now, it's out there. I'm really glad that I got that early before I misstepped too badly because I did become a public person about adoption because I wrote a book and I have a podcast and I had to figure out how to tell my stories and respect their stories because they, they don't want to be talked about. And if they do, they're going to tell their stories. I wrote an article once on how to avoid oversharing. And it's basically tuning in and saying, well, why do I want to tell this? What, what am I hoping to get out of it? And who needs to know this? And, and not, the, the answers to the questions don't tell you whether or not you can. You just need to look and see what's motivating me in this moment. Yeah, slow down and actually think it through. Yeah. I want to take a sidestep here and just 
Maybe it's because of the depth of the topic. It's hard to wrap up and put a bow on it because there's no such thing. <laughs> and, and here's one thing that I will want to say, and, and maybe this will fit in with a bow. A memory I have of my mom during infertility where she was just abiding with me when I was in pain about it. <laughs> and what a gift that was and how then I can do that with my children because my mom gave it to me. <laughs> Obviously, that was an important piece. As we begin to pull the conversation to a close, Lori, and with your three events, we sort of created this braid, right? Where we pulled on this one strand and then we overlaid it with the next one. And now we've been talking a little bit more about your advocacy. And I struggle because adoption is such a deep, wide, important and tender topic. It's really hard to even think how to put the little band on the end of the braid. I don't know what to ask her or what to say to be able to put the band. Well, definitely acknowledging that it's a big topic and that we barely scratched the surface, but maybe that if people want more on complexity, telling them where they can go because it's been 15 years of research, not like statistical research, but anecdotal research. And lived experience. And lived experience. Mm -hmm. You mentioned being an author. You mentioned being a podcaster. We know a little bit about how to find your blog, but is that going to get us to the podcast, to the book, to the other resources that you bring with you as an advocate? How could someone find you if they want to take a deeper dive? The blog, LavenderLews.com, houses everything. So on there you can find the book, The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption, which was written with the help of my daughter's birth mom. And there's podcast information on there too. The name of that podcast is Adoption, The Long View. And it's more about the marriage than the wedding. It's not a how-to-adopt podcast. It's exploring complexities with brilliant guests you do have a brilliant lineup and the facets of adoption that you explore and how they're explored and the respect with which these people from different parts of the triad come to the conversation. I think it's an incredibly valuable resource for anyone, certainly anyone who is part of an adoption story. And really for anyone who's just sort of interested in humans and how they tick and what we need from each other. Because I think most of the time, what we talk about with adoption, we talk about it as very adoption specific. But so often, I think a big part of what we tackle when we're dealing with those issues is actually a human thing, not necessarily an adoption thing. Adoption just runs a highlighter over it. But it's all stuff that we all wrestle with and work with in our own lives. At least that's my bias. Absolutely. And what I found in this stage of my life right now is I get so ignited by being able to look at an old thing a new way. And this podcast is how I'm doing that because I'm bringing in a variety of voices, a lot of adoptees, birth parents, activists, people who are changing policy, um, a shift from shame and secrecy to truth and transparency. And they bring something counterintuitive 
that is not only like, wow, interesting, but also helpful in parenting an adoptee. It's stuff I wish I'd known earlier. Yeah. And how might things have changed if you had the information that you're able to get now, if you had had that 25 years ago? And I'll I'll share one example I feel like I can share is that we started out thinking that love and logic parenting was super reasonable, super wise, would be, you know, of course, helpful for our kids. I think we started this when we went to a class when they were two and zero and we used it and it made sense because it's kind of what our parents did with us, set up consequences, learn from consequences, let the consequences speak for themselves. And what we found is when there is a layer of trauma, sometimes love and logic is unhelpful. It's not only not, it doesn't work. It's actually can push you backwards. And so a better way I wish I'd known earlier is connected parenting. And we were fortunate that that was brought onto our path at some point, but I I wish it had been earlier. Yeah. It's so tricky because love and logic can be really helpful. Like you said, it's a very useful tool for lots of families. I remember actually being in a training with the phase and it was early in my career when I was just trying to gather as much information as I could so that I could be useful to people who are dealing with attachment wounds. And I remember at the beginning of the training hearing, I think it was Charles, I'm not sure, say, you know, if there are attachment wounds, if there's a history of trauma, (laughs) this may not be the formula for you. And I thought, oh, come on. (laughs) It's glass for this reason. How wonderful that they said that, though, and because I never heard that. And even if I had at the time I was taking the classes, I would not have identified trauma and separation and attachment with my children's experience. Well, I love that you acknowledge that because how many adoptive parents hear so many things that could be very valuable for their journey, but they don't actually have the ears to hear it at the time that that information is delivered. And I think that also goes back to the narrative that we hear is that adoption is happily ever after. And if Mm -hmm. you get your babies early, they won't have had any memories of trauma or or separation. You get up there, a blank slate. Mm -hmm. Which is like the biggest lie in the world. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, man, we could talk about this for 100 years. Tell me when you think about this, this overlay of threads that we did today, the, this, this braid, when you try to think about all of it together, if you were going to offer us, all I know is how would you punctuate the conversation? I think I'm going to go back to the serenity prayer as a guiding light that has served me well, which is change what you can. That's a big category because that means get yourself more informed. Look at yourself for what's going on, what your part in a thing is, and then let go and accept what you can't. I think that covers health. It covers obstacles like infertility. It covers parenting challenges. So for me, that is a very helpful tool that I turn to again and again. And constantly looking at 
what can I change? What do I have influence over? And just even doing that self-assessment, mm-hmm. I think is a big step that a lot of us in our daily lives just don't take. So just even doing that inventory puts us on a different trajectory. Exactly. And then and then when you lay on that layer of acceptance and finding peace with what is beyond our control. <sighs> yeah, just kind of feels like a deep breath. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Jen. I'm so glad that you were here and that you were willing to share these corners of your life with us and how they interplay and what you have taken from them, what you've been gifted from them. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to kind of explore the map I've been walking for a while. Yeah, it is fun to put words to it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Can we close with the questionnaire that James Lipton always did at the end of Actors Studio? Yes, is this like Brene Brown's Rapid Fire? I don't know. What does she do for rapid fire? She has five questions she asks at the end. (laughs) Oh, well, kind of. But this is 10. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) We have to go twice as fast then. (laughs) What's your favorite word, Lori? Onomatopoeia. Whoa. Nice. What's your least favorite word? The one that came into mind, I'm embarrassed to say it's schmegma. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Openness and curiosity. What turns you off? Judgment. And I'm judging myself to be judgy sometimes. What's your favorite curse word? Isn't everybody's fuck? I think so. I mean, it shows up a lot. I always am pleasantly surprised when it's something different. (laughs) What sound or noise do you love? A baby giggling. What sound or noise do you hate? A baby screaming. It's <laughs> mm, a painful one. Yeah. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Maybe a journalist or maybe a anthropologist. I wish I'd gone into anthropology sometimes. And what profession would you definitely not like to do? Anything where I have to like get physically dirty. So like a trash collector or somebody who works in the dirt. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you pass through the pearly gates? That's not a construct that I buy into, but hypothetically, if I did, it would be, did you have a good time? Oh, I love that. Did you have a good time? I have to say, I have a really good friend who talks about life as being an earth vacation. When you said, did you have a good time? It made me think of her and her construct around life is just an earth vacation. I love that. That's going to stick with me. I'm on an earth vacation. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Lori. Thank you, Jen. It's It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me. Appreciate you joining us for this conversation. And I hope that this time with Lori has been a lift to your spirit like it's been to mine. I feel like there are so many angles and trails that we could follow that have fruit at the end of them and something of use as fuel for working with in our own stories. I hope that one of the things that you're able to take with you 
is that idea of the serenity prayer like Lori offered us at the beginning and then came back to at the end. That idea that to find contentment, our best angle in this life really is to lean into what we can change and to take action, to become educated, to explore, to be open to learning, and then finding the places where something might be beyond our control and learning to make peace. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, It should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at inwardboundco.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>